Good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. I'm going to give a plug for our church family here. I love this place. This is a great place. We're not the only great place, but it is a great place. I would also say to you, just let it be known on the front end, we're not perfect, nor do we claim to be, and that's really what our lesson is about this morning. We have been involved in a series entitled DNA. We're looking at what makes us, us. Who should we be at our core? And we looked at being God-driven, God-first always. We looked at being Bible-based, not just being people of the print, but people of the person first and foremost. Then last week, we looked at what it means to be in fellowship with one another, what it means to be better together. And then this morning, we're looking at keeping it real. What does it mean to be an authentic disciple, a real Christian? It reminds me of the story of a gentleman who was stuck at a red light. He was in a hurry. Apparently, the lady in front of him was not. The light turned green, and she did not go. And so he waited a few seconds and then honked his horn. She still didn't go. She apparently was on her phone and rifling through her purse, wasn't paying a lick of attention. And the man started to get angry, and he pounded on his steering wheel, and he, he rolled down his window, and he leaned out, and he started yelling obscenities at her. A police officer was sitting behind him and got out, went up to his door and said, Sir, can you step out of your vehicle? Well, he's livid. You know, why are you coming to me? You need to go to her. She's the one that needs to be arrested. She's the one that won't go. He said, Sir, put your hands behind your back. And he took the man to jail. And after sitting some time in a prison cell, the arresting officer came over to him and said, you're free to go. And the man's still mad. He said, well, you hadn't heard the last of me. He said, I'm going to sue this police department. You had no right to arrest me. It's not illegal to be yelling at someone because they wouldn't go. And he said, sir, I didn't arrest you because you were pounding on your steering wheel and yelling obscenities at the car in front of you. He said, I was sitting behind you and I thought, well, that guy's a real jerk, but it's not illegal to be a jerk. But he said, I noticed the cross hanging from your rearview mirror. I noticed the choose life license plate and the Jesus is coming back bumper sticker. And I assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> you know, hypocrisy is one of those sins that we love to hate, right? Especially those who are not Christians. There's not a greater sin that you can commit in our culture, and especially within the church. We'll overlook lying, adultery, pornography. We'll overlook a lot of things, but not, not hypocrisy. You know, in our airbrush culture, we despise counterfeits. And we love authenticity. We crave it. You know, for many years now, it's been open season on hypocrites within the church. How many times have you heard it when you invite somebody to church, and they say, oh, I can't go there. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. Of course, a lot of times it's a misdiagnosis, right? A lot of times what we label as hypocrisy is nothing more than inconsistency. If you're someone who is striving to live like Jesus, if you're striving to live a righteous life yet fall short, you know what we call that? Being human. It's not hypocrisy. And a lot of times the ones making the accusation are no better off than the ones that are in the church that they're accusing. But we have to understand that people outside of the church a lot of times have their hypocrisy radar pulled up and they're just ready to find us in a fault. But still, there are those who would be rightly labeled hypocrites within the church. And there are those that for whatever reason they wear a mask. 
Not because of COVID. Christians have been wearing masks for years. We walk into the assembly covering up our true self, hiding behind a mask that doesn't reveal our scars, that doesn't reveal our true identity, that doesn't reveal our hurts and our struggles and our issues. There are three types of people in this world. There are believers, there are unbelievers, and there are make-believers. Now, the first two are pretty self-explanatory. The make-believers are those who pretend to be something that they are not. And that is precisely the definition that Jesus gives of a hypocrite. Notice what is written in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they will be praised by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable giving will be done in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as far as you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. A man pulls into a, a, a bank uh, at the drive through to cash a large check. And the cashier says, can you identify yourself? And he looks in his rearview mirror and says, yep, it's me. <laughs> Hypocrisy is an identity problem. It's understanding who your true self is. In the Greek, it's the word hypocrites, And it's used to describe a stage actor. You know, back in the Greek and Roman cultures, if you were an actor in a play, many times you wore this large mask that had a device attached to it that would augment your voice. And so the word hypocrites became used metaphorically of the one who tried to present themselves in a light in which they were not really true to that character or that nature. The Pharisees were the epitome of make-believers. They were the epitome of hypocrisy to practice righteousness before men for the sole purpose of receiving praise from those men is fake faith. It's counterfeit discipleship. It's hypocritical because it's pretending to be something that you're not. Like a stage actor, the antics of the religious leaders got an ovation from the people, but they were a box office bomb with the Lord. You might remember several years ago, Jeff Foxworthy rose to stardom with his bit about you might be a redneck if. Remember that? If you have a collection of salad bowls that all have Cool Whip on the side of them, you might be a redneck. If you've ever mowed your yard and found a car, you might be a redneck. If you've ever been locked in a custody battle over a hunting dog, you might be a redneck. You get the idea, right? You understand the bit. You've heard that. So let's look at you might be a hypocrite if. And here's some qualities of the hypocrite. If your outward religious display glorifies you rather than God, you might be a hypocrite. 
Paul said this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Not the glory of self, for the glory of God. So when your spiritual activities are done for personal reward, you have officially earned the hypocrisy badge. If you hold others to a standard that you are unwilling to live up to, you might be a hypocrite. Everyone knows Matthew chapter 7. Even the non-Christians know Matthew chapter 7, right? Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it reads, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log in your own eye is sticking out. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus says, can you take what you give? Be careful placing yourself in the judgment seat. Be careful the standard you use because that same standard of measure is going to be used against you. How can you see the tiniest speck of sawdust in someone else's eye when you've got this huge log protruding from your own eye? And the answer is you can't, which means that you have to operate in the realm of assumption or judging motives. And we are in no position to judge other people's motives. You know why? Because we don't even know why we do what Therefore, we don't need to assume that we know why others do what they do. If your behavior is conditioned by your environment, you might be a hypocrite. There's an interesting episode in Galatians chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, it says, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Paul says, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So you have Peter, this apostle, this great pillar in the church, who at one particular moment kind of lost sight of who he was, lost his bearings a little bit, and he rubbed elbows with some elite, influential Jews while at the same time looking down on the Gentiles. Now, he knew that the Jews and the Gentiles had equal standing in the kingdom, but in that moment, he acted in a way that was unchristlike, and Paul called him out for it. Paul said that's not right. He called him to the carpet. When the conditions or the circumstances or the environment causes you to change your Christianity, causes you to act in a way that is unchristlike, then you've, you've entered the realm of hypocrisy. Finally, if you treat God's commands like a bag of trail mix, you might be a hypocrite. I like trail mix. I don't like all of trail mix. Some trail mix is nothing more than fruitcake without the baking process. And I've said before how I despise fruitcake. Some of the ingredients in trail mix I like. I especially like the little M&Ms that they put in some bags of trail mix. I like the nuts, the dried apricots. No, I don't like that. So I pick out the ingredients I like, and then I dispose the rest. And some people do that with the Word of God. They pick the commands they like, and they adhere to them. The commands they don't, they dispose of. I don't have to tell you that's, that's not true discipleship. That's not authentic faith. That's fake. You can't profess faith and not possess faith. 
And to possess faith means that you take it all. Doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. You consume all of it. You don't get to pick and choose which commands you want to follow and which you don't. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees were more than happy to follow the commands that led to right behavior. They discarded the commands that led to the right heart. Jesus called them out for it. There's a story that's told, it's a fictional story, about the Queen of Sheba that she went to visit the wise King Solomon for the sole purpose of putting him to the test. And so she brought a bouquet of flowers. They were fake flowers, but they looked real, so real that no one could tell the difference. And so she brought them into the king's court and she sat them there among the other bouquet of flowers that were real. And when Solomon came into the room, she said, I want to see if you can figure out which ones are real And which one is fake, but you can't touch any of them. And Solomon said, fine, open the windows and let the bees come in. How difficult is it to discern what is fake and what is bona fide? How do you determine the cubic zirconium from the diamond? When it comes to discipleship, believe it or not, it's not all that difficult. In Matthew chapter 7 again, this time in verse 15 and following, Jesus says these words, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus says, fruit don't lie. Good connection, good fruit. Bad connection, bad fruit. What a person is, he will eventually show. You go over to John chapter 15, passage we've talked about in depth over the last year or two. And you see in verse 1 and following, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Our Lord is offering an invitation here. Did you catch it? The invitation is this. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Because that's where this all begins. It all begins in relationship. Not relationship with the rules, it begins in relationship with the person. And if you love the person so much and you want the relationship more than anything, you're going to abide by the rules. 
You're going to obey, obey his commands because you love him and you want nothing more than to please him. So you want to tell how a person's fruit is of excellent quality? Well, he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Good connection, good fruit. Bad connection, bad fruit. As long as you and I live on the vine, as long as you and I are connected to the source of life, we're going to bear fruit that is of excellent quality. We're going to grow and we're sure and we're going to develop. But as soon as you pluck a fruit from its vine or its tree, you know what happens to it? It begins to die. And that's what happens with us. As soon as we lose our connection to the vine, we begin to shrivel up. We will eventually die. We no longer are growing and maturing. We're no longer producing. You see, when it comes to abiding and abiding in the Lord, it's all about connection. It's all about relationship. And that's what makes us effective servants. That's what makes us genuine. I I read an article not long ago about a preacher who before he preaches, he prays a certain prayer. And, And I was interested because I pray a certain prayer before I preach, every Sunday, every, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, every time before I get up to preach, anywhere I preach, I, I say the same prayer. And in essence, that prayer is, Lord, help me get out of the way. Help me to get out of the way. Help me to preach your word and to stand out of the way. Well, I was interested in what this gentleman had to say because he said before every sermon, he prays the prayer, Lord, help me preach the sermon that I need to hear. I love that. And I've started using that. Because you see, I'm not just your preacher, right? I'm a member of this congregation. I'm a member with you. I don't stand above and apart from this congregation. I am a part of this congregation. This is my family. I just serve in a different role than you do. But you're my family. I need you. Hopefully you need me. Hopefully, I bless you as much as you bless me. So any sermon I preach, I need to filter through me before it ever goes to you. And believe it or not, I do that every week, which is kind of scary because not long ago, I was lying in bed looking over my sermon and I fell asleep. Probably not going to bode well for you when that happens, right? (laughs) Lord, help me preach the sermon that I need to hear first. And hypocrisy is one that hits me right in the heart because I find it way too easy to take off my Christian hat and set it aside. When somebody pulls out in front of me and goes 20 miles an hour, when I'm driving on the interstate and there's a big truck in the left lane, a big truck in the right lane, they're just going side by side and one of them won't get out of the way. When someone hurts me, when someone does me wrong, when someone says something mean about me, it's tempting to react in a way that is unchristlike to let go of my true identity for a moment. In an effort to be more precise and more practical, I want us to look for a few minutes at a passage from James that I think gives us some pointers, three C's, to help us dispel of hypocrisy. It's James chapter 1, 26 and 27. It reads, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
James gives us three indicators of real religion. Number one is conversation. How's your speech? You know, every day, the average person speaks the equivalent of 16,000 words or a 64-page book. Every day. In one week, a person says 16,000 words on average. Okay? 16,000 words per day, 64-page book. In one week, that comes out to a 450-page book. Which means that in a year, the average person speaks 5,760,000 words or enough words to fill four volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's a lot of words. What does your story say? When people read your story, because they will, what are they reading? What does your story, what does your conversation say about your marriage? What does your, your story, your conversation say about the way you handle people who hurt you? How does your story testify about who you are, what you profess? Does what you profess also match up with what you possess? You see, we have lost the ability to speak words that are wholesome only, and too many times we find ourselves speaking words that are not pure, that are not undefiled. All too often our conversation may be good at times, but it's also mixed with words that are unhealthy and do not further the cause of Christ. We have lost the art of silence. We don't need more unwholesome speech. We need more caged tongues. All too often, and social media does this more than any place, social media has created this, this, this idea that anyone who has a thought can publish it and you need to hear it, and that my opinion is worth it. When opinions are like belly buttons, everyone has one and they're worthless, they don't do anything. But social media is one of the biggest places where you see hypocrisy. Is the persona we're presenting online the real the real us, the real you? You heard about the linguist who was, who was able to keep silent in seven different languages? There's a lot to learn there. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Paul said it best, your speech must always be, always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. A second indicator that our religion is real is our concern our care, our compassion. That's not to say that we're not convicted, but along with that conviction comes compassion. You know, he talks about the orphans and the widows. That's an exhaustive list. There are others that we should be concerned about that we should show compassion to. Jesus made that clear in Luke chapter 10 with the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Well, everybody, right? Anyone who has a real need, we should be showing care and concern too. Which means it's not just the orphans and the widows, it's those who don't look like us, those who don't think like us, those that don't act like us, those who don't share our political views, those who maybe uh, live on the margins, the immigrants, the prisoner, the homosexual, the transgender individual, all are included. 
everyone who Christ cares about is who we should be caring about as well. A man by the name of Bob Rowland once wrote a very sobering poem entitled, Listen, Christian. It reads like this, I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry. Real Christians see the afflictions of real people and they take real action. We bleed the same blood that Christ shed for, for us and for all of those. All of those, even those that we might not even see as worth it. A final indicator of real religion is your character. So you have your conversation, your care, your concern, and your character. And I think this goes without saying, but I mention it nonetheless because James does. He says that the faithful child of God must keep oneself unstained by the world. We live in a very dirty world. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. We live in a world that is saturated with sin, and sometimes the stains are hard to remove. But James presents a bit of a dilemma. In, at least on the surface, he says we must go into the world to help the hurting, but we mustn't let the world rub off on us. That can be difficult. Being real means being fully engaged in the world. We have to be willing to get dirty, to get our hands dirty. Jesus did. He rubbed elbows with the gluttons. He had conversations with the adulterers. He hung out with those who were lost in sin. Jesus lifted up the fallen, but he didn't fall. He didn't resort to being a glutton or a drunkard. That's the difference, right? He hung out with them with the intent of influencing them, not allowing them to influence him, right? So the remedy is to be like Jesus. That's the solution for hypocrisy. It's easy, right? Except that it isn't. It's not always easy to be like Christ, but that's the target. That's what we're shooting for, to be a rebel with a cause. And that cause is the cause of Christ, to make a difference in the world around us, to show others that there's a better way to live. And to help them remove the dirt and the filth from this world. This, uh, this is an ermine. Pretty stinking cute, right? So an ermine is of the weasel variety. They live in the northern United States and Canada. And in the winter especially, they have this beautiful white coat. Which is a prized commodity for hunters and trappers. Because that pelt will bring good money. So when a hunter or trapper wants to catch one of these ermine, do you know what they do? They go to the ermine's den, and around the opening of their den, they place mud and all sorts of filth. Then they release the dogs, and the ermine, to escape the dogs, will immediately run back to its den. But when it gets to its den, it won't go in, because it doesn't want to get its beautiful white coat dirty and filthy. And so the dogs kill it. Beautiful, happy story to end with, right? Maybe we can learn a lesson from the ermine. Not to be killed, but maybe we can learn the lesson of not being stained by the world. Not allowing the world to get us filthy. But rather, in our conversation, in our concern, and in our character, we strive to be stained with Jesus. We strive 
to exude his character wherever we go. What we're really stained with is the blood of Christ and we let everyone know it. Not being covered in the filth of this world, but rather standing apart and showing others that there is a better way to live. Luke's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you this morning, if you're hurting, if you need the prayers of this church family, if you're ready to take the next step in faith, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone, we want to help you. Whatever your need this morning, this is a loving family that wants to help you be right with God, right with your fellow man. So if we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.